0: Welcome to the Freudcast. Running one of the world's oldest and most esteemed media organisations would feel like the culmination of a life's work for most. Running two of them, either side of the Atlantic, is an almighty feat that very few have achieved. Having risen through the ranks of the BBC to eventually become its Director General, Mark Thompson then left that big job for another one, CEO of the New York Times brands this huge aren't without their ups and downs of course especially now and mark agreed to an in-depth discussion with my colleague at freud's sam smith
1: so mark where to start i guess i mean it's been an extraordinary last few months um what's your take on it i mean what are we living through right now
0: well obviously you know we're we're living through a uh health emergency which which is without precedent and, and you know, therefore, it's that thing which every journalist secretly craves, which is a story to which you don't really know the ending. We have no idea where it ends up. And for media organizations like The Times, the actual business of covering this story, it's a health story, it's a political story, it's a geopolitical story, it's an economic story. It's also a kind of cultural story in many ways. Um, that's been an enormous part of what we're doing. But I also think, I mean, I think, as many people have said, I definitely think we're also seeing an acceleration in, you know, the future is coming quicker. Um, and the rate of change in the way we work, in the way we live, in the way we think about what business models are going to work and what aren't. It's not as if I think we're seeing fundamentally new trends, but the the new stuff and the new directions are working better and faster, and more aggressively. And I'm afraid, great swathes of our economies, I think, are showing, in a sense, the, the fear we had that maybe some things wouldn't, wouldn't be that sustainable. I think that's coming true far faster. So it's like a decade um, uh, happening in um, literally a year or two. So it's, a, it's an extraordinarily um, busy, complicated, disruptive time.
1: The last few weeks have added another layer with the Black Lives Matter protests and the, the racial equality issue that's, that's coming to prominence. How has that changed the, the nature of what we're seeing sort of culturally, socially, societally?
0: Well, you know, a year ago, the Times, New York Times, we did a, um, um, a big project called 1619, which really was a recasting um, uh, of the story of American history through the lens of slavery, um, uh, 1619 um, uh, being the year when the very first slaves arrived at one of the colonies in Virginia, um, at Jamestown. And, and so at the times we've already, I think in recent years, been really focusing on the breadth and depth to which, um, racial difference and indeed racial tension and inequality and injustice, um, very much to include um, specifically police brutality against African Americans is a kind of central inescapable unavoidable aspect of, of of life in this country and by the way obviously it it's, it's is reflected in the u k in in most other western countries as well in in different ways um, but this has um, uh, the the um, Terrible events in Minneapolis, and then kind of what's happened subsequently, has taken this certainly the moment to a height I've never seen. I've been coming to America for for, for more than thirty years, um, and following the story in different ways for for more than thirty years. I've never seen anything quite like this. Uh, again, we don't quite know where it where it leads to, but it's it's very challenging, and by the way, extraordinarily challenging. Not just in, in a sense on, on the front lines in 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 the streets and 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 so on, but also you know, in in organisations, in, including kind of bastions of of you know um, good intentions like the New York Times, we, we've seen an incredibly emotional, um, sometimes angry conversation inside the organisation um, about all of this. And indeed, uh, you, you may have heard in a couple of weeks ago we lost our um, our opinion editor, James Bennett, resigned after yeah, a complicated story with a piece about a controversial piece in this area by a conservative senator. So I would say there's a lot of soul-searching going on. We're certainly searching ourselves about, about why, although you know, we are a relatively diverse organization, why we haven't done more, why we haven't got further. Um, we did a survey of companies' um, um, you know, remarks about diversity uh, and inclusion over the last decade, and the most commonly used phrase is, we know we need to do better. Uh, which I have to say, it seems to me, poses the question: What would it take for you to do better? What would it take for us to do better? So, you know, we're we're trying to dig deep and and absolutely in conversation with all of our colleagues, trying to figure out are the ways in which we can go further than we at a faster pace than we have so far.
1: And how do you reflect now, a couple of weeks on um, on James's departure from the opinion section? The right call, the right right thing to do. Well,
0: look, I, I, I mean, James. Um, was a transformational head of opinion. And we've seen so many um, brilliant initiatives come out of opinion, including, by the way, a broadening of the range of voices. Um, uh, We've got more African-American voices. We've got more, you know, feminist voices. We've also had more strong conservative voices. That's all to be applauded. Um, um, Unfortunately, with the piece in question... Uh, which was a very uh, strongly worded uh, piece written by uh, Tom Cotner, uh, uh, it's fair to say, fairly kind of conservative, conservative um, uh, US Senator, essentially making the case for US federal troops to be uh, put onto the streets of America's cities. It didn't go through all its proper um, editorial checks. Would, I think had it, had it done so, uh, I think would have been um, changed in various ways. And, you know, James's decision to resign, I think, probably was probably was the right one, given the circumstances at play.
1: And, and how has the last few weeks been in terms of your black colleagues and those from, from different backgrounds? You know, there was quite an outspoken reaction on social channels from a lot of your writers and from your staff. Of course, yeah. How have you addressed that, and what's your reflection on on what they had to say to you?
0: Well, I mean, the first thing is... <clears throat> I want to say at a fundamental level, the, the New York times is still talking to itself in the sense that every, every we, we, our senior leaders, um, are listening carefully. Um, um, I think we are now beginning to move to debate about what is to be done, what happens, what has to happen next. And I think actually in the end, um, you know, I feel pretty optimistic that there are going to be positive and healthy outcomes out of that dialogue. um, um so I think, in the end, the fact that it's it's a quite a noisy organisation, it's, it's an organisation where people aren't afraid of saying very strong things to to leadership. I think is a strength rather than a weakness. You'll know that I'm not um, uh, directly responsible for the, yeah. the editorial side of the business at the BBC and Channel Four. I was editor in chief here. I'm, I have to say, I have the of the blessed relief of just being responsible for the company and the yeah. uh, 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 and the New York Times as a kind of enterprise rather than for its editorial content. Um, But I'm a a strong supporter of uh, my my dear colleagues, Dean Bacay, the editor, A.G. Salzberger, the publisher, and so on. Um, And it's been quite a tough time for them as well, as for for, for their colleagues. But in the end, I think, you know, um, it's important that we have a very straightforward, honest conversation um, about... Uh, diversity and respect for everyone um, and, you know, try and turn good intentions and good words into more action than maybe than we've seen so far.
1: And how do you think COVID has played into this, Mark? I mean, it's obviously, there's a very feeble atmosphere to a lot of discourse in lots of ways. How has COVID fed into this, do you think, contributed or played a part?
0: Well, in particular, I want to say, in the, in the context of the United States, and I think this is not true in the same way of the UK, um, COVID itself was le- led onto a political culture which, which w- was al- already more polarized than it's been probably for a century, even before COVID started. And, and COVID, I talked about COVID being a, an accelerant of, of kind of behavioral and, and kind of financial change and of digital. I think it's also been, in a way, unfortunately, an accelerant of, of polarization and anger. And there was a lot of anger in this country before COVID, but the 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 prospects of potentially a deep and extended recession, the isolation that we're all facing. So, you know, institutions and mm-hmm. communities have not been seen each other face to face. That's true of not bumping people into the super, into, into people in the supermarket or in a church or place of worship, as well as, you know, the the wonderful world of Zoom and, and Hangout and WebEx and all the rest of it. It's been quite a frustrating, claustrophobic time. And I think that, um, you know, when we look forward to, let's talk about, you know, the Northern Hemisphere, and in particular about the US, a long, hot summer in Mm. prospect, uh, leading up to an incredibly contentious presidential election, I don't think the the high drama, as it were, of, of what we've seen in recent weeks is going to be the end of it by any means.
1: Do you think looking at it from a sort of high-level view up above the clouds, what do you think the likely impacts are going to be? I mean, I know it's early; these are straws in the wind a little bit, but what any strands that you're already picking up that you feel are most likely to stick?
0: Yes, I think that I'll give you I'll give you two or three. I've talked about one already, which is I think um, uh, uh, many sectors. Um, Come back, but don't come back um, uh, the way they way they don't come back to where they were. They come back to a new place. In media, advertising is looking like a really unreliable um, kind of legacy and mature revenue stream. And the at the moment, it looks like media organisations uh, um, which have got like as indeed we have have got a. Direct relationship with their users have got a direct paying relationship. Um, are likely to do far better than than those who um, who rely on advertising. Advertising at the times is less than a quarter of our revenue. Um, right. We we announced in the current quarter, the second quarter of the year, uh, our advertising revenue was going to fall by between fifty and fifty five percent. Was our guidance. Our stock went up despite that so half the advertising predicted to go stock went up in fact we're trading right today at a pretty close to a 16 17 year high because people believe in our rapidly growing subscription model so i think we'll see that
1: digital adoption and the kind of the the rush onto online platforms i mean it's something that you at the times have been uh, pushing on for a number of years already i mean you talked about that sort of 10 years of change almost in a few months i mean What are you seeing, Mark? What are you seeing in the numbers? What are you
0: seeing in the trends? When I joined the Times um, in in late 2012, um, it looked like the New York Times' digital pay model, which was about 18 months old then, was running out of steam. And by um, uh, this quarter, the second quarter of 2013, so i bit my second full quarter, um, the number of digital subscriptions we added in that quarter had dropped down to 23,000 in a quarter. Well, we added nearly six hundred thousand in the first quarter of this year. Um, so we've seen an astonishing transformation. We, when I joined, we had a half a million digital subscribers. Um, we are, you know, we've essentially got five million digital subscribers now. So that's a ten x increase, and the, the rate, the curve is increasing and has been increasing for two or three years. It was we were accelerating before um, COVID happened. Um, after the Trump bump, we came down, but we came to a higher base, and we've been before the Trump bump, that's 2017, um, when we started building in 2018. So then we were accelerating, COVID happened, we're accelerating more. I set a goal 18 months ago that we would get more than 10 million subscribers by 2025. I think we will exceed that goal by 2025. Um, so we figured out a way of scaling a new subscription business, and we're the biggest in the world, but. I think others will find ways of doing that as well, I, I, I hope, because I don't see how you sustain good journalism um, if you're going to continue to attempt to get your revenue from advertising. It just won't, it won't take it because of the intense competition in digital and the fact that print, basically, print advertising is, is a dying, dying revenue stream.
1: And do you think that COVID is more widely in terms of uh, tech platforms, older generations engaging with tech? Do you think it will have more long lasting um, footprint yes, um, and imprint yeah. on sort of what consumers are doing i, I do I think that the
0: the i mean we've already seen you know we, we we have about a million print subscribers just under a million and th- these are typically the average ages our, 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 our you know, podcastings very young digital a little bit older our, our print guys are 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 you know 50s 60s, 70s 80s sort of thing um uh, n- before COVID, 90% of them, 85, 90% of them were, were logging in to digital as well. They were using their right as a print subscriber to get digital and using digital as well. But now everyone, including the older, speaking our community, are getting used to uh, 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 Zooms and, and all the rest of it. And, um, you know, streaming entertainment, Netflix, Amazon, Hulu, all the rest of it iPlayer, BBC iPlayer has been an incredible boon in this period. So, I don't know, I think think our our virtual world and weirdly the sense of what's great about the physical world, you know, um, can you get out and walk, can you go to the park, can you exercise, Uh, can you go and see your friends, but also the best of the virtual world and the virtual world filling in bits of the digital world which won't work, I think that feels like quite a profound change.
1: Looking at the media sector and the sort of impacts of COVID, Uh, six weeks ago you told the ft that you were pretty optimistic from the times point of view and it sounds like from what you're saying that yeah. has continued how has it been for the business how, how are you coping as a business well because
0: this? we're a public company i can't i can't talk in detail about current yeah. results uh, the, the the obvious point about the new York times is we are increasingly a subscription driven um Uh, business. And even advertising, we have some really quite interesting, fast growing categories like podcasting. We've got the most successful speech podcast in the world uh, in the daily with an incredibly young audience. And that's a fantastically valuable platform at the moment for advertising. And that may become a subscription platform as well in due course. Um, And our reliance on advertising as I said, it's less, just under a quarter in the first in Q1 of this year. Twenty four percent, I think, of our revenue came from from advertising of all kinds. Um, um, so we're we're well set, as it were, to thrive um, in this emerging world, both the COVID world and the post COVID world, just because of that disproportion of of expansion and the and the, and, and the the strength of our our, our subscription model. Um, and I think that. I want to say that the media companies which have taken um digital really seriously and really invested i I feel this is a very capital intensive time in 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 media um if you look at the amount of of, of investment media companies are putting into digital i I mean literally pounds dollars Mm -hmm. uh number of people they're hiring we've been we're on a rate of hiring an additional hundred software engineers every year and we have more if we could get them um those companies tend to be, you know, be, be it a Netflix, be it a Spotify, be it a New York Times, those companies are thriving and growing rapidly. I think companies which have been trying to nurse legacy models along and have been slightly kidding themselves about their, about their, their digital chops um, I mean everyone's got everyone 's got a website everyone 's got an app and all the rest of it i mean it 's not that but the question is what are you doing with it and to what extent do you see your future in it and are you pouring love and energy and software engineering into it and with really great testing platforms so you 're growing it you 're finding ways of growing it and I want to say specifically that quite a lot of, of um, um, legacy print media newspa- national newspapers local regional newspapers in my view don 't have sufficient um, scale or investment or coordination in digital to offset the inevitable slide in in on the print side, and that ad-funded TV um, again looks very vulnerable to me.
1: Do you do you think COVID has sort of shown or demonstrated that the ad-dependent model is is dead or fundamentally flawed? But it's always been very cyclical.
0: Uh, um, it's always been very cyclical. In other words, you know, in in boom times, you know, I mean, it was once in the UK, for example, in the US as well, a license to print money was famously called, and it was an incredibly profitable business. Recessions were always tough. And because it was such high margin revenue, when it fell away, you really felt it on the bottom line as well. And what happened then was, you know, companies who were um, driven by this, would then cut back their costs and wait for the next boom to arrive and I, I i feel that both in newspapers and in quite a lot of broadcasting there's been that tend- tendency to think this is cyclical that you you cut your costs you wait and then it'll come back again i don't think it's going to come back uh, and and if you don't find a way now of putting serious money you know we, we we put the equivalent of hundreds of millions of dollars into our digital you know and we've done it through thick and thin, we've done it. We we warned Wall Street over the in where we said we're not going to, you know, be as profitable as we could be because we're going to take the money which could be profits and put it back into more software engineers, more data scientists, and all the rest of it. And fortunately for us, we you know Wall Street seen the impact of that, and now that's mm-hmm. a that's a policy that they they back. Initially, they were you know what do you mean you're not going <laughs> to so 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 I I think if if successful brands can get into that virtuous circle of massive investment and commitment, um, they've got a chance, but I, I don't, it, there are many, many companies I see media companies I see in the UK and in the US, right. I, I just don't, I, it's, it's not happening yet. And I can tell because I use their products and it's not there yet. And in, for some of them, I think they will run out of time soon.
1: And what do you see in the wider sort of new sector, particularly Mark, you know, we've, we've seen thousands of jobs going in just the last few months. I mean, whether it from Buzzfeed to Axios, countless others, you know, it's worrying time for anyone who really values a quality range of diverse journalism. What's your feeling about that?
0: Well, I mean, look, I mean, if you talk to Reed Hastings about content, um, Re believes in massive content investment. He's trying to build Netflix into the world's greatest entertainment machine by throwing billions of dollars into new film and TV content and and, and to go cash negative to the tune of billions of dollars every year. So he's... He believes in content. Spotify believes in content. and They're currently in the business of an amazing spending spree to try and buy up some of the best podcasting talents in the world because they believe in content. Now, I want to say I believe in content. We've been growing our newsroom. We're at Windy. We're announcing some redundancies today in the New York Times, but not in our newsroom and not in our digital operation. I mean, it's always difficult to lose to lose anyone and we don't welcome that at all but we are, we are tr- absolutely trying to make sure that what we're not doing is in any way damaging or diminishing the thing that we have to sell to get our model to work and so although I understand of course why and it's a, and you know they, it's a t- they've all got a tough tough task to do I understand why other news organizations are shedding journalists but I, I just don't see the future in it I mean it's it's you know, it's like, what's your next move? I mean, if you if you if you've got less journalism, in the end, how are you going to get how are you going to really get audiences to engage more deeply with you? So, to me, you know, if if you possibly can, you can cut everything, um, but but don't cut don't cut the journalism, and and that same goes for comedy and drama and documentary and all the rest of it. Um, one of the real frustrations I've got is the is the um, very parsimonious. Um, attitude of the UK government's taken to the BBC's funding over the last ten years, at a time when commercial media is in trouble, um, government should be trying to make sure the BBC's really got enough money to take up some some of the slack. Um, and yet earlier this year we had heard talk out of Number Ten that you know why not sell off local BBC local radio? I mean it, you know I, I think the people who said that, whoever it was cannot have listened to BBC local radio and understand to what extent that's part of communities up and down the country. And you can't really talk about leveling up less advantaged parts of the UK and bringing those communities back into the fold and, and not feel you need to support the, the public media that really kind of helps them understand their lives and their communities. And by the way, works with the emergency services. So there's something to me about making sure that across public policy, Everything that can be done to support change, transformation, and investment in private media, but I would say also greater investment in public media, in the BBC and Channel Four and all the rest of it.
1: What about trust, Mark? Trust in media, trust in the relationship between the public and and journalism and media, particularly in the US, but also in the UK and more broadly, we've seen that sort of strained at times in recent months. How do you think COVID has? impact that uh, do you think it's had any impact on that sort of relationship between the public and journalism and media
0: i think my advice to anyone about media is to be skeptical <laughs> you when know, I, I mean, people say what should i you know what should i look at and read you know let's say students say to me what were you i say, different sources read lots make up your own mind and I don't think, I, I, my aim, you know, if I ruled the world, would not be to have a trusting public, you know, like sheep, you know, mm. <laughs> at all. I think we want a, a, a sceptical, you know, public who use their critical faculties. So, uh, you know, I, that's that's what I think we need. And we need, I think, the media to help the public hold powerful people to account. And by the way... We are powerful ourselves, and we need to be held to account as well. So I I think a a feisty, lively debate about what what should happen in the country, how our governments and oppositions are are performing, and about how well or badly the the media is doing is a good thing. And I think the searching questions in recent weeks about the media's own weaknesses um, to, to cover in its coverage of, of, of race issues, um, the the questioning of, of our makeup and particularly the makeup of our leadership and how, how well we are ready to really listen to audiences, I think that's all healthy, mm. really. Um, and so, Just in a way, I, I think, honestly, good, honest, accurate journalism, mm. in the end, wins through. I think the truth beats lies in the end. And, you know, I don't think that you know we aim therefore to be in a position where you know our journalism's so good that people don't complain i think the closer relationship you build with your users the closer the reader feels to the institution in some ways the more opinionated they are about what you do and i think that's a good thing i mean you'll know this you know from from the, from the bbc it's the it's the people who love you know radio 4 most who've got the longest list of grievances and and points and suggestions uh, and so I, I see that as a you know I mean we want our democracies to be kind of noisy places where everyone can speak, everyone's got a right to complain or to come up with a bright idea. And I think that that I think that, that the kind of idea that we are looking for a kind of you know to Im- somehow achieve more trust is a slightly weird idea. That feels a bit like an elite trying to find the right sort of way of doping the public and kind of keeping them sort of keeping them down. And I so I, I'm I'm not in favour of that. I think I, I think a kind of boisterous, quarrelsome, noisy environment but I have to say I do I think straightforwardly, making sure that people do have access to some sources which are actually true. Yeah. I mean I'm I'm not in favor broadly of getting rid of gobbledygook. I think people freedom of expression includes you know the freedom to express whatever you want really including lies and distortions and all the rest of it. But Giving and um, the big major digital platforms throwing the public a bit more of a bone, so it's a little bit easier to figure out where you are, what's what, and above all, making sure there's enough investment that there are really high quality sources of news available, and significantly available, by the way, for free. I um, mean, it's really important to say we had um, we had 240 million users in March, and we have probably around six million people with access to uh, our subscription model so that's 234 million people looking at our journalism for nothing we we've, we've got a pay model which allows hundreds of millions of people to look at it without paying as well as those who do pay um i think the funding of high quality journalism and other forms of high quality content is really important and that is fragile i think now about
1: well, the role of something like facebook mark um do you think facebook for instance has done enough you talked there. You noted there about some of those tech platforms having a responsibility yeah. as to how they. What's your message to to Mark Zuckerberg to others who lead those companies in terms of their role within news?
0: Yeah, no, I've talked I've talk actually quite a lot to Mark Zuckerberg about myself, um, and 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 not not this year, but several times last year. And I, I want to say actually, I think Facebook is more engaged in this issue than they have been. And has, become, has been more responsive to publishers than they have been, and you know the the. So I, I wouldn't want to single people do single Facebook out, but as it happens, I think Facebook has has gone through quite a lot of soul searching itself, particularly in late eighteen nineteen, and the conversation with them is slightly different. What I say about all of the, the the digital platforms that means Facebook, it means it means Google, it means Twitter, and so on, is we need to help. People understand the geography of this thing, and to have a sense of, you know, what am I looking at? Where does it come from? Is somebody is somebody as it we're taking responsibility for this? If it's a New York Times news story, or it's a BBC news story, or, it, or it's a it's a it's a Wall Street Journal news story, or a Times of London story, you can you can find the editor. You can sue them. You can um, 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 maybe you you're told that it's an opinion piece. This is a a piece of opinion. The, news, the newspaper is a platform for it. It's not the newspaper's opinion. But you get some kind of context, so you know where you are. And I think the real – one of the biggest problems we have with digital is the stripping away of signals and signs. So stuff is read out of context or given an entirely fallacious context – so it's a piece of genuine journalism or opinion, but given some spin or distorted, literally edited, so it's, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's fabricated video or whatever, in ways which are not signalled clearly enough. And you can feel the platforms trying to figure out how to do a better job here. I, I think the difference is, honestly, two or three years ago, I'm not sure how they were trying. I think now they are beginning to realise that, you know, There's a lot of regulatory and political pressure on them. And I think you can feel that. And also, I think, honestly, I talk, I talk to the leaders of these companies. And, you know, I, I, I genuinely believe, maybe, maybe I'm naive, that they actually want to do a better job themselves. I can feel more activity and I can see it on the screen, but it's still a mess. And each election is a bit of a white knuckle ride because you don't know what, you know, is going to be put in front of the electorate.
1: What can leaders on the call today, listening to this, uh, taking this in, Mark, what can they do to, geez, suggest, against the coarsening of language and sort of mistrust on different sides? And we feel this playing into the U.S. sort of election yeah, as well. well.
0: This is happening at, at, at almost every level, so including, you know, literally, in in a um, in a company, in a company like the New York Times. What are the bounds of internal debate? You know, on on the Slack channels. You know, what what how how far can you go? We want a, a free and fair. Um, and frank exchange of views, but there are limits. One thing the I talk about in that book, um, which I wrote actually kind of just before, I mean, I, I just caught Brexit and I, I, the book came out um, in first edition anyway, just before, before the Trump election, but it's, uh, I, Donald Trump featured extensively because I've been tracking him for some years. But, you know, we, we've lost a lot of the conventions. There was a convention... Um, essentially of, if you like, civil discourse or politeness um, in public life, uh, where there were limits, to, uh, not, not, not laws, but kind of conventional limits, you know, um, people were used to going so far and no further. That's gone. One of my predictions is over time, we will come back to some level of conventions, and we are already. I mean, it's already, you know, in much of the media, quite rightly, um, a really big problem if someone is sexist or racist in in their remarks mm. uh, can quite, quite easily lead to someone being dismissed or or indeed having to resign I think that's probably honestly justified um, so w- conventions are coming back you just can't do that you can't get away with that you shouldn't be allowed to get away with that sort of thing um, but we obviously haven't got that as fully in politics as we used to have. And maybe what happens in the future shouldn't be like the past. Maybe the past was too deferential, too polite, too hard to hold people to account. But I think, you know, as societies and, you know, media, politicians, public, Mm -hmm. we need to get to the bottom of that, about what's actually going to help get the job done, the job being the representation of the people in the end.
1: What kind of damage is Donald Trump doing to that, though? I mean, given the... Given the last couple of you talked about how you've been tracking him. I mean, it's almost impossible, no matter how hard you might try, to avoid being tracked or tracked by him. What, what's your take on the sort of, you know, we talk about the coarsening of public debate or trust in media. I mean, those areas that he's not just lent into, he's smashed the door down.
0: Well, I was going to say, he's almost like a kind of, um, a kind of living experiment. In what happens when you decide to not obey any of the rules ever, you know, and to just sort of say it? I mean, it's like it's like radical disinhibition, where you say what's in your head, um, no matter how offensive, no matter how rude, no matter how based in fantasy rather than reality. You just say it. It's, it's, I mean, it's kind of, as a piece of kind of performance art, it's kind of very, very striking in a way. <laughs> but it's, a, it, but it's, it's like an extraordinary experiment. And it's not, it's not I, although, you know, people are constantly trying to find analogies um, in the past. You know, they talk about the 1930s. I mean, I, I did that a bit, a bit in my book. There's no real analogy to someone who is um, um, striking the kind of poses and subjecting or um, um, allowing the public into these kind of streams of consciousness. And it's very hard to tell whether, although Trump, I think, does inside Trump's rhetoric, if you you can call it that, you can see a lot of kind of threads, which are much earlier threads in, in modern discourse, um, and you can see how much he learned from using social media in The Apprentice and that business of a direct relationship with the public, going around the media, um, and, and, by the way, being very adept at spinning the media and all the rest so you can see all of that. But I think it's, to some extent, I do think he's a kind of unique phenomenon, and it's very hard to know what happens when he goes. Though, frankly, one of our, um, um, uh, Frank Bruni, one of our uh, columnists, um, wrote about 18 months ago, he may well not go. Even, even you know, he may get re-elected. He may not. But even if he's not elected, it's unlikely he's going to stop talking. I think that the idea that that, uh, um, as it were, there's going to be, a, that, I mean, literally until they kind of screw the coffin lid in down, uh, I think Mr. Trump will be talking and trying to play an active role in shaping opinion in America and the world. Um, but I have to say, I, I've got a feeling that it's like some of it is is part of a wider phenomenon and will continue. I also do think he's a very unique case. And, and to, to that extent, once he stops being president, I think things will change greatly. You know, a President Biden would be a very different atmosphere right away from a President Trump.
1: We've got a question here from, from Tola, just going back to some of those newsroom issues. Um, she talks about the, the fact that some of your competitors, like The Post, have announced new newsroom positions focused on race, I think including a, a managing editor for for D&I. Do you have similar plans? Do you think you think you need to insert new roles into the newsroom to actively take this on?
0: I don't. I, I think in the organisation as a whole, we are um, um, in the middle and are probably a, a few weeks away from trying to look quite deeply about whether we want to add uh, new new positions in the company. Um, I, I want to say this that uh, about our newsroom, and, we, and with, with some humility, it, 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 it's, it's Dean the job, not mine, to 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 lead, and indeed, our publisher E. Salzberger's job to to lead on these issues rather than mine. Um, it is so intrinsic to um, what we're trying to do, particularly in our coverage of the United States itself, that you know I would say every single desk head um, in um, in the in the newsroom should regard this as their duty. Now we may want to add some 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 additional positions to support that, um, but you know the, our questions will be: Do we have the right set of desk heads? Some of them, you know, Mark Lacey's a brilliant um, uh, um, head of the national desk, one of the most important desks in the newsroom, is an African American, and so on. We 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 have some diversity amongst our desk heads and mm-hmm. senior editors. Um, how do, how do we get more? Uh, and how do we make sure that whether you're doing culture or you're doing sport or you're doing cooking or, you know, quite apart from the obvious things of, you know, covering the country, covering New York City, covering national yeah. politics and all the rest of it, that ev- everyone is, 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 and I want to say, it's the people who don't know America, I think perhaps don't always understand this, race, racial injustice and oppression of minorities touches everything touches everything. It, it's such, in a way that, you know, I think God knows the UK's got its issues, but it's not quite the same. It, in this country, it touches everything. And no part of our coverage, You can you say, well, this is you know, this is just about X, it's got nothing to do with it. It, it touches everything. Mm-hmm. It, it's all okay. over sport. It's all over culture, popular music. Yeah. Um, it's everywhere.
1: And just lastly, Mark, very briefly, uh, Ben asks, is the future W, V or L-shaped?
0: <laughs> so uh, so here's the thing I think that don't I mean I think we already um, already know that different bits of the world have different letters of the alphabet um honestly um um uh, our digital subscription business um is it's not really a, it's it, it's not a letter of the alphabet it's just up and up I mean it's 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 it, 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 COVID has accelerated the growth of subscribers and will accelerate subscription revenue it looks like so far. So that's a different thing. Look, hospitality, tourism, um, live entertainment, um, international jet travel. These are probably going to take a long time to come back and may never come back to their business travel. For example, may never come back to where it was before. The hard thing to predict is, um, whether or not, um, when you take all of those different sectors together, you know, what letter of the alphabet do you end up with? I mean, it, I've only, I'm, if you ask my instinct on this, I, I would say we will see in the U S and probably in many other economies that we we're likely to see if the signs of a kind of increase in cases doesn't get too bad over the summer, um, in the fall, in the autumn, I think we will see quite a rapid recovery. Mm. Um, Uh, um, however, we will not get back to pre-COVID levels. Mm. And I think 2021 and 22 could be quite difficult, actually. I think it could be – it's more likely we'll get a spurt back, um, and then, you know, it may be that actually we're going to discover that we're in for a long two- or three-year kind of recession, and you may see some loss in business confidence in in 21 and 22. That may be wrong, though. But my sense in in, in quite a few economies is actually there's. Mm pent-up demand. And it might be, by the time we get to September, October, we might see some significant improvement. Thanks to Mark and Sam. And thanks to you for listening. You can keep up to date with the Freudcast and everything else going on at Freud's by following us on LinkedIn and Instagram. I'm Matt Barbet. Bye for now.